Welcome back. I am Amber Kelly, and this is An Unknown Compelling Force. Um, welcome back indeed. Sorry it's been such a very long time, but uh, we're back. We are back. So, um, this new episode, this is episode four of An Unknown Compelling Force, an exploration of the Dyatlov Pass incident. And while the episodes can stand on their own, I would suggest that if you are just joining us for the first time, go back to the beginning. Start with episode one and uh, catch up with us. You will just be that much more well-informed about who these players are and what's going on. Um, so today's episode, An Unknown Compelling Force, episode four, Shedding Light. talking lights. There are several mysterious light phenomenon around the world. One is in Hesdalen, uh, the Hesdalen lights in central Norway. Another is the Marfa lights in West Texas. Uh, these lights, a lot of times they're described as multicolored lights. They're swaying in the night sky. They sometimes move with enormous speed. Is, is that a thing? Is, is speed enormous? I don't know. Um, that's a thing people say, right? They are researched by a lot of different people. There's a lot of different theories. None of them have explanations. So the different theories, they range from gases to car headlights to electromagnetism, which, again, you may have heard before. Uh, if you've listened to our episode called Mancies and Magnets, it's an interesting correlation there. Uh, it's also uh, described sometimes as a product of piezoelectricity, which is resulting from rock formations in the area. So anyhow, having grown up in Texas, I do have a friend who lives in Marfa. Uh, she's been there for about six years. So I gave her a call to ask if she had seen the Marfa lights and to get her take on the whole thing. I have seen them. I have. I say that just hopingly because, so I have definitely seen them. They're like floating orbs that move. Um, they do look like car headlights, um, but... My boyfriend and others that I know have seen variations that are more intense, like where they're swooping right at you or they're, like, moving, like, like with a consciousness kind of. So this first part is in line with what I had read, that people go out there looking for the Marfa lights and that what they're seeing is largely written off as headlights in the distance. This makes sense. This is not a very interesting story. But that's not exactly where the story ends, according to what you can find, that apparently people go out there, they're looking for lights, they want to see lights. If they see car headlights, then they can still be excited and say they saw the Marfa lights, but they in fact did not. They saw car headlights. On the other hand, the Marfa lights are a different phenomenon, and they happen much more rarely, and it is much more rare that people actually do see these Marfa lights. So maybe that is more in line with what she's talking about with her boyfriend, Ross. Now, what is also interesting, what I did not expect her to say, 
is the way that he saw them swooping in their direction or acting as if they had a consciousness. And that was very interesting when we get into this next section of the story that we are about to tell. I'm going to take you to a different time now. This time is between 1959 and the present. I want to tell you a story. It begins in 2002. This is not my story. This story belongs to Yuri Yakimov. Um, another Yuri. Uh, so don't get confused. This is a night shift foreman for a mining company in the North Ural Mountains. It was around 11 p.m. on September 11th. And um, this is 2002, September 11th, 2002. Yuri was making some rounds at pit number 15, which was not currently in use. There were several pits and dumps and uh, piles, and all these trucks were currently transferring rocks from pit number 3 to the rail station. So a lot of equipment was housed at pit number 15. There had been a good deal of theft from some of the pits in the area as of late, and in these unguarded locations especially. So Yuri was making rounds at pit 15 to check the equipment. On his way to the transformer box, which he was going to use to flood the pit with light so he could look around, he noticed a strange white light bouncing up and down on the rock pile. It's about 200 meters away. He heard no sound, couldn't identify the source of the light, which was about another 100 meters away. And as he noticed it, a beam from this mysterious source turned and shone on him. So he ran the rest of the way to the transformer box to flip the lights on. This beam's still shining on him and he hid behind the electric box facing away from the light beam. So at this point, the light moves away from him. He waits a couple of minutes, agonizing minutes, uh, looks back toward where the light's coming from. It immediately focuses back on him. Only this time, a couple of the, what he's referring to is at this point as flashlights have broken away from this main source and now they're racing toward him um, with, with enormous speed. I don't know. Uh, so he looks away. He looks back again. Now the lights have multiplied to four or five, maybe more. He looks away and notices the lights leave him alone. So as wild as it seems, he determines that these lights, they're not thieves with flashlights, but they're some unknown mysterious light entity which reacts to his, his gaze and his gaze only. The lights had no reaction to the floodlights that he turned on in the pit. Without looking back toward the source, now Yakimov completes his duty of checking the equipment. He finds everything in order. He sees no tracks. The road is damp. Uh, that would suggest any other vehicle having made its way to this area. So before leaving, he turns and looks directly at this mysterious light, which immediately responds to his attention focusing on him and moving toward him. So he yells, hey, hello, what's up? He whistles, he curses. Still nothing elicits a response except for him looking at the light. So Yuri turns away, runs to the main road in fear. So soon after that, a truck carrying ore passes and picks Yuri up. He tells the driver the story. And then he tells it again to the shift workers gathering around the canteen, something akin to the, uh, the uh, what do you call that? The water, the water, I don't know, offices. <laughs> so anyhow, imagine someone telling, water cooler, that's what I was looking for. So imagine someone telling you the story around a water cooler, right? What would you think? So now imagine you're Yuri Yakimov. Crazy, right? So. Yuri returns to the site after sunrise. It's around 7 a.m. Just to look around, right? 
He finds no tracks, uh, evidence, clues, lending any credence or explanation to this mysterious light. A couple weeks later, stories faded, and it's simply a story. Until Yakimov happens across an article titled, quote, News from Forest Cordon, end quote. Uh, so in the supplement in this newspaper he subscribes to, it's dated September 2002. It tells the story of two forest rangers, um, Rudovsky and I'm going to have to get the name of the other guy, reporting on a mysterious electric light, uh, which they call, it seems like it's coming from a projector. One of them claims that he looked at the light. It looked like two people with torches, which I'm assuming is meaning flashlights again, heading their way. So he decided to get closer to find out what it was. But when he got close, the number of lights suddenly became seven. So he immediately hides behind a cedar tree and looks out toward the lights from there. He reports that the mysterious light set did not respond to anything, including a cigarette. It only responded to one thing, his gaze. So maybe not crazy. About 1.30 in the morning, this is back to the forest rangers, uh, there's this loud pop and the lights disappeared. So Rudovsky went to sleep and in the morning searched all around but found absolutely nothing suspicious. So of course Yuri reads this, he just, feels justified, he's excited, he immediately contacts the forest service in an attempt to speak to these rangers. He's told they're doing their rounds in the forest and no one knows when they will be back. So over the next couple of months, he calls several times only to get the same answer. Yuri eventually gives up. Once again, this incident fades into only a memory. More than three years later, now we're in January of 2006, Yuri's flipping channels on his television lands on a program called A Mystic Hike. He only catches the last 10 minutes of the show, but enough to learn about this mysterious circumstance of, I assume you would guess, the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, and that the pass is relatively close to where he experienced this light phenomenon. He wonders if these two things could possibly be related. It was enough to reignite his curiosity at the very least about these mysterious lights. So he spends several days in the library trying to find anything he can uncover about this Dyatlov incident. So let me just say, I've been down this path too, and let me tell you, finding the facts, is it's not easy. At least Yuri was able to read Russian, so that might have made it slightly easier for him, but there's plenty of theories, there's a lot of conjecture, there's fantastical stories, these are all clouding whatever may or may not be the truth, uh, which is locked away years ago, and it's, it's now, it's literally dying. And there's this other theorist, theorist um, his name is Genady Kisilov, and he posits that there's actually only one man still living, um, Boris Lobstov. He was a search party leader. He was one of the ones who found the tent. He says he's the only one who may still know the answers that's still alive. So anyhow, here is Yuri Yakimov, right? He's decided he has to talk to these forest rangers to compare these three incidents. So he goes back, tries the ranger station, finds neither of these rangers actually still work for the Forest Service. But Yuri doesn't give up this time. He eventually found Radovsky. So here are some of the details he learned, which were 
omitted or misrepresented in this news article, which he read years before. So Rudofsky did not just recall these events, by the way. So it's not him years later trying to remember what happened. He's able to read them from his official record of what had happened that evening. So first of all, this did not occur in September, the same as Yuri's incident, but actually happened in August. Um, Rudovsky was not with another ranger, so forget it. We're not going to find his name. Um, he was alone. Rudovsky originally thought someone was playing a joke or trying to scare him, so he got dressed, got a gun, and ran to confront the situation. But when he got close to the lights, that's when they multiplied. He realized this is not a human source. He became terrified. He hid behind the cedar tree. So here's some things that we can learn from this, right? Uh, first of all, it's not on the same date, so this happened more than once. Um, he had time to get dressed, I think, when we consider the D.L. Pass incident. Uh, that's important. Again, go back and listen to the beginning. Go back and listen to the beginning. Um, he's alone. So it makes it easier uh, to quickly determine this cause and effect factor, right? The element reacting to the human gaze. What I mean is if you have a group of nine people, right, it's likely that someone from this group is looking at the light all the time. So you don't really have the opportunity for that focus to be removed, to be able to notice that it no longer responds when you quit looking at it. So anyway, I'm taking over here for a little bit because I think there's some things that you need to know about the Dyatlov incident. So you've seen some pictures from this trip. If you've been on the site and not just listening to the podcast, then you see that they were documenting their trip um, on their group camera. So this camera was obviously found when they found the tent, the clothes, everything else. And it was actually mounted on a tripod. Now the final picture on this roll of film is a dark photograph with a spot of light in the center and a lot of subsequent lights arcing off to the left. So the case files were closed in 1959. A gag order was enforced on anyone participating in the search and investigation until 1990. In the 1990s, the lead investigator, Lev Ivanov, he wrote his hypothesis of what happened as what he called the enigma of the fireballs. So on the evening of the Dyatlov group cutting and running from their tent, Another group of ski tourists reported having seen fiery orbs in the sky in the direction of the Dyatlov team. Lastly, the members with internal injuries, they had no external injuries. So in other words, they had no external bruising or anything that would be associated with blunt force trauma. So, he's right, Yuri Yakimov. And does all this research, does all these interviews, uh, he's relating his personal experience. So he creates a theory, a specific theory of what he thinks happened on the evening of February 1st, 1959, to the Dyatlov group. I'm going to tell you what he thinks happened to the Dyatlov group that night, February 1st, 1959. This is Yuri Yakimov's theory. The group sets up their tent around 5 p.m. and prepares to hunker down for the night. Nicky the Frenchman is on duty and still wears most of his outerwear when he goes outside to pee around 6 p.m. They did find that someone had been outside peeing, by the way. It's almost completely dark. He takes a flashlight. This was found on top of the tent. He sees a bright light bouncing on the mountain slope and calls out to the others in the tent. 
The light catches his gaze and illuminates Nikki and the tent. Several torches break away, race toward Nikki. At the last second, he turns his face away and is struck in the temporal lobe, resulting in that non-fatal fracture. He cries out in pain, drops the flashlight, which is found by the search party on top of the tent, and falls. Sasha and Liuta rush out to help and try and pull him back into the tent through the opening in the front. They both look at the source of the light, and so their bent position and lifted heads, they receive this blow to the ribs. Liuta turns away, but looks back over her shoulder, getting another blow to the back, which causes her tongue to tear away. Despite all of these injuries, these two are still alive and mobile. So the lights may also be emitting an infrasonic beam of energy. We're going to talk more about this in the future. Keep this in mind. Or a pulse undetectable to the human ear, but affecting the hiker's mental state. Combined with the cries and conditions of their friends, they go into a panic. The light uh, and the injured people, they're blocking the door to the tent, so they cut their way through the side to escape. As they make their way down to the cover of the forest, one of the nine is inevitably looking back at the light, unknowingly causing it to chase them. They help their wounded friends down to the cover of the ravine. They build them a pallet. Kalevatov stays with the wounded, who are probably already dead. The others make their way to the cedar tree with the understanding that they must get back to their skis, their clothes, their provisions to make it out of the tag alive. Uh, this is the what they call the Siberian wilderness, right? Um, not quite Siberian. On the edge. Roostick climbs the cedar tree to find the light still illuminating and bouncing over near the tent. He breaks branches off for a better view. At about 10.30 p.m., based on Yuri's theory of the lights expiring after four hours, the hikers hear this loud popping sound, and Roostick reports from his perch in the tree that the lights have gone away. Strong wind kicks up at the same time. This blows Roostick from his place in the tree. He hits his head on the way down, resulting in the cranial fracture. Igor makes a small fire from the cedar branches. Doroshenko and Kravonoshenko, they stay to tend it, while the others, Igor, Rustic, and Zina, make their way back to the tent. Their hands, face, and feet are already frostbitten, emitting the impossible combination of numbness and pain. They begin to experience hypothermia as they struggle up the slope. Cramps set in, they lose their breath. They're overtaken by tiredness as their body gives in and they freeze to death. Georgie and Doroshenko support the fire for about two and a half hours, but it's not enough to keep them warm. In delirium and desperation, they put their frostbitten hands and feet directly in the fire, feeling no pain. Then they also freeze. Once midnight arrives, the only survivor of this party at this point is Sasha. He makes his way to the cedar tree to find his two dead companions near the fire. He cuts their clothes off, brings them back to the wounded in the ravine. He waits in vain for his friends to return from the tent, and by about 2 a.m. also gives in to the cold. Yuri Yakimov's thoughts start darting about after this point. He attempts to convince the reader that there are scientific elements being discovered all the time which readjusts our understanding of reality. He mentions frozen plasma as a fifth state of matter and research regarding something called a graphic thought record, where scientists were able to reproduce human thought into photographic film. I looked this up, so the images are a little bit of a stretch, but it is relatively interesting if you want to look into it. Regardless, these have little to do with his theory, and everything turns into more of a plea to the reader. He lists specific coordinates, dates, and times of all these lights events, 
Ultimately, his writing becomes a passionate search for anyone who controls satellites, which may be able to look back at these moments in time, as well as a sincere warning laying out exactly what someone should do to save themselves should they experience this light phenomenon. And at the same time, one of the last things he mentions is, if you have a camera handy, you should take a photo or two. With your eyes closed, of course. Uh, maybe I'm going to solve a mystery from Russia in 1959. That would be incredible. That would be incredible. I'm Amber Kelly. This has been an unknown compelling force. Thanks for listening. Until next time.